You are listening to the 68th episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast featuring the original Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Hello and welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 68. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And this is the first full episode produced on the new computer. It's a HP laptop. It's silver, so I named it Norin. That's relevant because this is also the first time I've sat down in quite some time to record a full episode. Most of what you have heard really was recorded in advance, with the preambles recorded at a later date, and with the nightmare that was July... A lot of that had to be pushed out the door pretty quickly. Circumstances just kind of lined up where I just did not have studio time to sit down and do full episodes. I was working a little more at work, a few extra days, a few extra hours here and there. There were quite a few appointments to deal with my car. Uh, Nothing major, just minor things that were inconvenient. And of course, the computer itself dying. It just, it was kind of a nightmare of a month. So I'm glad to sit down and do a full episode once again. And I told you I was going to remind you of this this week and next week, as these are the last two episodes to be released through DaredevilPodcast.com, the site's current home, since the show is moving over to TwoTrueFreaks.com. So to give you the relevant dates, on the 19th of August, the site itself, DaredevilPodcast.com, will be decommissioned, and that domain name will point to the show's page on TwoTrueFreaks.com. And then late at night on the 21st of August, or early in the morning on the 22nd of August, The show's feed itself will convert from the current feed to the new feed, which matches up with TwoTrueFreaks.com. And then that may result in some rampant downloads. Just be prepared. It's a one-time only event. iTunes seems to be especially susceptible to this phenomenon. And just a couple of quick notes before we dive into the episode proper. If you ever wanted to hear me talk about the power of Shazam graphic novel by the extraordinary Jerry Ordway, look no further than Kyle Benning's show, King Size Comic, Giant Size Fun Podcast. Seek that out. He and I had a great discussion about that, and I want to say thank you for having me on, Kyle. And a big thanks to Rob Kelly, creator of Ace Kilroy, or co-creator, more accurately. A while back, I supported an Ace Kilroy Kickstarter, and one of my perks was an Ace Kilroy prize pack, essentially, including a Mego version of Ace Kilroy, some original art, a mug, and off the top of my head, I forget what else was in there, but Ace Kilroy is now vigilantly watching over me as I sleep, and I feel much, much safer. So I want to say thank you, Rob. The Mego is incredibly cool, and customs were made by Mark Nito's Custom Mego. But that's all I have for preamble, to be honest with you. I'm pretty much ready to jump into this thing. I'm really excited to talk about the second leg of our crossover double feature, double feature, in which we delve into the pages of The Incredible Hulk. This was especially exciting to me as, well, with Iron Man, I didn't know the character as well, but with the Hulk, I've got quite a bit of familiarity. And then after we cover that book, I have a couple of emails to go over, one of which I've been saving for a long time, just for the length of discussion I'm going to have on that and the importance of it. So please stay tuned. I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo for a show that I have not admittedly decided yet. But once that promo is over, feel free to come back as we dive into The Incredible Hulk, number 152. 
Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. And we have returned. Unlike Iron Man, I don't feel that the Incredible Hulk needs quite the illustrious introduction since we have had Hulk in here before, and this isn't my first go-around with the Jade Giant, so a quick overview. Bruce Banner was, of course, a brilliant scientist who was working on a gamma bomb with the military, and he was caught in the heart of a gamma explosion. So now he transforms into a giant green rage monster whenever he becomes angry, stressed, or just otherwise agitated. And that's kind of all the layout you really need. This issue's not heavily intertwined with the Hulk continuity at the time, The only thing I would add to that as far as specifics would be, on a recent trip to Washington, D.C., a senator has vanished, and the Hulk is being blamed. I'm going to go into that in a little bit more detail as we get further into the book. And that book, of course, is The Incredible Hulk, number 152, as I mentioned in the preamble. It is the June 1972 edition, and it has a cover that, well, it shows the Hulk taking up the bulk of the cover. It's a full body shot that shows the Jade Giant screaming in emotional agony. Surrounding him within a gray frame are heroes Captain America, all of the Fantastic Four, Nick Fury, and of course, Daredevil. Or else why would we be here? It's an oddly framed cover, and I mean that literally. There's an actual frame there. For as much as that's actually on the cover, it's oddly plain. It's sparse. The components are fine. It's a great image of the Hulk howling. There's some nice shots of the surrounding heroes all on model. They're all vignettes, and it just doesn't elicit any excitement. I will add that I love, love the tilted, clean logo of this era. And maybe that's owed more to, well, I would have been not yet born, but this was the logo used in my early formative days looking at the Hulk on the stands. Even when I couldn't read it, I would recognize the shape of the logo itself. The text on the cover is, Who Will Judge the Hulk? And that's almost the title of the story. The actual official title is, But Who Will Judge the Hulk? This story is written by Gary Friedrich, penciled by Herb Trimpey, inked by Frank Giacoya, lettered by Artie Simic. It is available, of course, on Marvel Unlimited, but also available in physical form, reprinted in Marvel Superheroes number 100, The Essential Hulk Volume 4 trade paperback, and The Incredible Hulk number 100, that is the 2007 edition. And with that, let's jump into the first leg of our story. In the Nevada desert, the Hulk engages in one of his most cherished pastimes, namely stomping across the desert and fighting with the army. The Hulk smashes tanks and jets, which are all manned by life model decoys, and they are all part of a trap set for the Green Goliath. General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross, acting on orders to bring the Hulk in, has set this trap, and both Captain America and Nick Fury are on hand to assist. Despite some personal differences between Fury and Cap, all manage to work together and ensnare the Hulk in an electrical net. The Hulk is successfully taken down, and President Nixon, yes, that President Nixon, gives Ross his next orders. 
bring the Hulk in for prosecution. Despite having his misgivings on the orders, Ross complies, and when the Hulk reverts back to Banner, he is loaded into an ambulance to face his day in court. And we're going to stop there for a moment and take a look at this particular segment of the story. Why do I like this story? Why was it chosen beyond being a two-part crossover with Daredevil? Well, for starters, we begin the issue with a 10-page fight, and it's the Hulk versus the army. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing broken about that. That is fantastic. Sign me up. Now, being more specific within that 10-page fight is, well, to begin with an opening splash, that is fantastic. However, I can't deny that the proportions on the Hulk are just a bit off. Now, to kind of give you a little bit more detail from what I mentioned in the introduction to the issue, in Hulk number 151, due to the Hulk's escapes, Congress was shutting down Ross's Project Greenskin, which is the overall umbrella that the Hulkbusters work under. As General Ross was testifying to the need for Project Greenskin, Morton Clegstead was a senator who, well, he had cancer, and he actually raided the research of Project Greenskin and... Trying to find a cure, he took some gamma infusions, which, of course, always works out well. Let's be honest, if that worked out well, instead of having a bunch of rage monsters running around, we'd have the cure to cancer. And we don't have that in the Marvel Universe. We have rage monsters. Despite that track record, he decides to infuse himself with this stuff, and of course, instead of curing cancer, it turned him into a sand creature. Yes, a little bit different, but definitely odd. And of course, in this fight with the Hulk, which is inevitable, Clegstead kind of, well, melted. Of course, the general public doesn't know it was the senator. They just think it's a sand creature and that the Hulk is just being a dick. So once again, we get finger pointing. And as odd as it is to think about the Hulk stomping around Washington, D.C., maybe doing like the I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill bit, having this go back to business as usual, you know, the Hulk in the desert, fighting Ross in the military, it does make it easy to jump right in. You don't necessarily have that baggage of the whole Washington, D.C. fiasco. Now, while this is, you know, somewhat as I called it, business as usual, Hulk versus the military, there are a couple of key differences. First of all, the Hulkbusters actually sought out the Hulk and proceeded to provoke him. Yes, that's right. They sought out this rage monster who can smash buildings and tanks, and they decided to poke him with a stick, metaphorically speaking. It would be easy for me to make some snarky remark, or an additional snarky remark, because it seems like it would be a dumb tactic. However, it works, doesn't it? The Hulk is captured by the end of this segment. The second key element is that all of the Hulkbusters are life model decoys. So yes, they're provoking the Hulk, but nobody's actually in harm's way. So this may be the most organized, thought-out Hulk takedown I've ever seen, at least for this era. And adding to the sort of verisimilitude of this takedown is the fact that the machinery, the hardware, such as tanks, etc., they all look solid, and I mean that not just in the figurative sense. I mean, they actually look solid. They look like they do have weight. So not only does that add a cool visual flair, it also makes the Hulk lifting up a tank, well, he looks like a boss. That's all it is. It looks like a real feat of strength. And while Trimpy's really good at drawing the Hulk, nobody's going to dispute that, he draws a fairly plain Captain America. Now, equally to his credit, he draws a Nick Fury that is suitably grizzled, a little rough and tumble. And as alluded to in the synopsis, Nick and Cap are a bit at odds. And by that I mean you can chip ice off of their cold shoulders. And the reason for this occurred in Captain America number 149. Yes, I went and looked that up for you. Basically, Nick proposed that, well, since Cap was using a lot of S.H.I.E.L.D. resources and working with them, that Cap should join S.H.I.E.L.D. as a full-time agent, a full-time operative. And of course, Captain America wanting to be free declined. So Nick Fury blackballed Cap from all S.H.I.E.L.D. operations and resources. 
basically saying, well, Cap, if you liked S.H.I.E.L.D. so much, you should have put a ring on it. Yes, it's that catty, to be honest with you. And at first I balked at the electric net taking the Hulk down because I thought, well, apparently nobody saw the dossier labeled Zax, an electric villain that the Hulk has managed to best in the past. But this is a pretty relentless charge of voltage going through the Hulk, so it, it's easy to overload him, I get it. Like Nick Fury, Trimpey's General Ross is also spot on. He's cranky, he's leathery, cigar chomping... Trimpey excels in the Hulk's facial expressions as he struggles against the net. You actually feel muscles pushing when you look at this. And then we get a Richard Nixon Spiro Agnew cameo. Who saw that coming, right? Normally we stick to generic presidents so as to not date a book. But no, it's actually Richard Milhouse Nixon. And I gotta say, Trimpey draws an odd-looking Nixon, which is kind of a critique that I never thought would come out of my mouth. On the other end of the spectrum, though, as standout as the Hulk's facial expressions are, I'm a big fan of the transformation sequences. When it's displayed on paper or on film, I'm a big sucker for it. I've always been fascinated with that, but this particular transformation is mediocre. If I had to put it in a word, I would use the word pedestrian. Now, Friedrich has Ross in an interesting position now. Ross is actually somewhat sympathetic towards Bruce. He actually does want to help cure Bruce. That's the main thrust of Project Greenskin. However, once he cures Bruce, he wants that power for the military. Despite that, there is a sympathetic vibe, which is why they went out of their way to capture Banner. However, now that he's been captured, it's time to prosecute, and Ross is a bit stunned. Essentially, his mission has backfired. So that's where we are now. There's a lot on the line. The Hulk is captured, and we're headed to court. And of course, if we're headed to court, that means Bruce Banner is going to need a lawyer. Luckily, we know a guy. So let us jump into the second part of this issue. In New York, blind attorney Matt Murdock gets the call. Bruce Banner wants him to be his defense attorney. Matt wastes no time. He bids adieu to the Black Widow and suits up as Daredevil to head to the airport. In another part of New York, specifically the Baxter Building, the Fantastic Four discuss the charges levied against Dr. Banner. The charges are conspiracy to destroy public property and endanger human lives. Despite having violent run-ins with the Hulk in the past, Reed feels that Bruce can't be held responsible for what his other half did and vows to testify for his fellow scientist. A short time later, Matt is on a plane with Bruce Banner and General Ross and tries to talk to his client. Bruce, however, is despondent and mutters that he deserves his punishment. This doesn't sit well with Matt as Bruce is loaded with sedatives, leading to a deranged mindset. Matt argues with Thunderbolt Ross to have Bruce revived a bit, and Ross reluctantly agrees despite the very real danger of Bruce becoming the Hulk at 40,000 feet in the air. Nervously, a stimulant is given to Bruce. Everyone waits for Bruce to revive and hope that they haven't made a terrible mistake. Before we find out if that was indeed a terrible mistake, let's look at this particular leg of the story. This second chapter, which is entitled The Defender of the Doomed, begins with an excellent splash page. It's exquisite. The story is very well encapsulated, kind of like the credits of Mission Impossible. The first three panels are Matt getting the call, but the second half of this page is a split design. On one hand, you have Bruce's face, the statue of Lady Justice, protesters screaming, Death to the Hulk! On the right half, you have the Hulk's face and Bruce talking to Matt, as well as Ross taking the witness stand. Having said that, let's be honest here. There's no great in-story reason for Matt Murdock to be called as Banner's lawyer. The two haven't really met or had any real contact with each other, and it's kind of odd that we're in a plane that we're going to find out is going to New York as we see Matt leave New York to meet the plane. 
Why would he be on a plane back to New York? I have to admit, there are shots here where Matt looks downright gaunt. He just does not look healthy. It's going to take a little bit for Trimpy to get his groove in terms of drawing Matt versus Bruce, who is gaunt and unhealthy. Luckily, when we see Matt switch to Daredevil, he looks decent. He looks good. He's wearing a backpack, which draws the character down a bit, and I thought we kind of learned a little bit about that in the Wally Wood era, but here we are again. And I do appreciate the attempts at this time to touch on the continuity in other books when a guest star would come in. For example, Matt and Natasha having this budding relationship. Yes, it's one panel, but it at least puts his finger on the pulse of the book and where that book was at that time. So Daredevil's off to catch a plane to go somewhere to board a plane back to New York. While that's happening, we see, da-da-da-da, the Fantastic Four. Let's be honest, you can't really be mad when the Fantastic Four show up. It's it's a certain Marvel tradition. It's always nice to see them. Not only that, it sets up the idea of the Hulk's capture being this national sensation. It's kind of a big deal. To boot, this is a nice-looking Fantastic Four. It's a bit, a bit oddly stiff here and there, and the Baxter building looks a bit off, but generally nice to look at. And these are great characters to discuss these charges with. Because they've had some frequent run-ins in the past, but you also have Reed, who is a scientist himself. So they're good voice boxes to these charges and to kind of put the charges on the table, put some things in perspective. As mentioned in the synopsis, the charges are conspiracy to destroy public property. Sounds like vandalism, right? And normally with vandalism, you're looking at a steep fine, maybe restitution, and a little bit of jail. Yet somehow, some way, we have the death penalty on the line. Here's the thing that never comes into the equation, though, and I'm not quite sure why. If the Hulk is suspected in the disappearance of the Senator, wouldn't there be more to that? Wouldn't they want to question him? And it's never brought up in this course of the storyline. Now, some of these charges are somewhat trumped up. When you think about it, the context is that the Hulk is somewhat suspected in the disappearance of the Senator. There is, at the very best, tangential evidence to lay a kidnapping charge or attempted murder charge. There's nothing there to convict the Hulk, so it looks like they're grasping at straws with this. With the second round of charges, that second part, endangering human lives, we kind of have the idea of assault, yet that's all one stretch. It's conspiracy to endanger human lives. To me, that's more fitting because we are looking at something along the lines of negligence. Again, not an offense where the death penalty would likely be a factor, and yet here we are. But with that negligence idea, I can kind of see a case forming. If you're Bruce Banner, you know you have this affliction called the Hulk, and that affliction is destructive and dangerous to others. There's sort of a moral responsibility to resolve that to some extent. Much like if you own a motor vehicle. If you have a tire that's prone to flying off and causing accidents and you don't fix that, you could be at fault for something terrible. So if you don't take the car to a mechanic and get a known issue fixed that could endanger people, that's on you. Likewise with Bruce, knowing he has this affliction, he's had opportunities to work with the government in the past, but he continuously remains on the run for various reasons. Now granted, if Bruce showed up and said, okay, heal me, and they did manage to work with him and get everything resolved, you have no story. But if we're talking charges, the idea of endangering human lives, at least a conspiracy to endanger human lives, could be proven with that negligence factor. Conspiracy to destroy public property? Eh, that's a little bit flimsy. But again, this is a discussion happening with the Fantastic Four, and we have Ben and Johnny who are ready to hang the Hulk. Reed's a bit more moderate. This presents to me a clear bias. If you look back at Fantastic Four number 25 and 26... The Hulk took on the Fantastic Four, and I'm using air quotes, which you cannot see since this is an audio medium. You see, in Fantastic Four number 25, the Hulk took on some members of the Fantastic Four. He definitely took on the Thing, and it was a brutal battle that, well, the f didn't go well for the Thing. He also took on the Human Torch, and that didn't go well for the Torch. 
And of course, the Hulk was taking on the Avengers at the same time. Basically, the Hulk was owning everybody. That big fight came down to Rick Jones managing to put a pill in the Hulk's throat that turned him back to Bob Banner. Yes, that's where the Bob Banner incident began. But Reed was sick through that whole thing, fighting a fever. So he was actually out of the action. Therefore, he doesn't have the same bias as the other two because, frankly, he didn't have his ass kicked. So there is a precedent for Reed being a little lighter on the Hulk. But the other side of the coin is he is very specifically supporting Bruce Banner, a fellow scientific mind. And of course, this is Reed Richards who defended Galactus. So ever, ever the solemn, level mind of Reed Richards is prevailing. But you know whose mind isn't prevailing? Bruce Banner. I mean, Banner's just incredibly depressed, like he's been listening to the cure for the whole flight. You kind of want to have Matt slap him back to his senses, however, that wouldn't go well, would it? Speaking of Matt, as we've gotten later in this issue, Herb Trimpey seems to be getting a grasp on Matt, because he looks a little bit more stout, especially sitting next to Bruce Banner, but let's be honest, Bruce looks a little appropriately disheveled and gaunt. Bruce Banner always kind of looks like a drug addict, which is kind of fitting when you think about it. Banner more or less gets the short end of the stick. He has all the negative side effects of a substance abuse problem, none of the actual fun of it. I'm not promoting drug abuse, I'm just saying, if you get drunk on Friday night, you're likely having a good time. But Saturday morning, that hangover is a bitch. For Bruce Banner, it's all hangover, it's all DTs. He's always destroying relationships, putting his body through physical duress, getting into legal trouble, and consistently trying to seek counseling or help for this problem. What Bruce doesn't get is a story about Friday night where Scott Bayo showed up at the bar and bought everybody shots. So for the Hulk, and for Bruce, it's all downside. And for me, that's always made sense to present Bruce Banner as that thin, gaunt, sickly-looking man because he's always dealing with a hangover. Of course, General Ross is not a sickly-looking man. He's basically got men who cower at his command. He has weapons and hardware at his disposal. He's an intimidating dude. And yet, our boy Matt stands up to Ross to get Bruce into the right frame of mind. Adding to the tension of this conversation is the fact that the plane's cabin is drawn realistically cramped. So you have that heightened sense of the idea of no escape. And that may be why the army soldier who's giving Bruce the injection looks appropriately apprehensive. You can see the thought process in his brain that he's just really thinking about turning around and saying, Damn my orders, forget this. Ross does relent and he's not wrong here. This conversation with Bruce could wait till it's on the ground, and once again, why are we on a plane back to New York when that's where Daredevil was to begin with? Well, that's an easy answer. Simply put, things cannot, will not, and should not go well from here. So even though Ross was right, and Matt pushed, we know what's about to happen. So let's dive into the third part, and just see exactly how bad this decision was. At New York City's John F. Kennedy International Airport, security is being beefed up for Bruce Banner's imminent arrival. Crowds have gathered, but nobody is allowed admittance, including J. Jonah Jameson. The Fantastic Four arrive on the scene in their Fantastic car, just in case there is trouble. On the plane, Bruce begins to rouse, but the idea that he is unchecked gives him a panic attack, and sure enough, he transforms into the Hulk. Matt manages to get Ross to back off for just a moment, and our own Man Without Fear begins to talk some reason into the monster. Just as the Hulk is taking Matt's hand in trusting friendship, the plane lands, and General Ross advances. Feeling that Matt was lying when reasoning with him, the Hulk goes back to his default pissed-off mode and tears his way out of the plane, and the issue ends with the Hulk ready to take on everyone, and the Fantastic Four, along with a full slate of military soldiers and munitions, are ready to fight back. Come on, you kind of had to know it was going this way, right? 
Of course. To begin with, um, in terms of looking at the story, the airport looks appropriately chaotic and crowded. The details on all of the vehicles is, as has been the case through this whole issue, glorious. And going back to something I said earlier about the scale of the Hulk's capture, looking here, there is more security and press at JFK Airport than a presidential visit. I mean, J. Jonah Jameson, recognized face, publisher of the Daily Bugle, press pass and all, is not allowed into the area. Neither is Peter Parker. We're going to worry more about that next week, but just want to make sure that's set up. So this is kind of a big deal, to put it lightly. It's a big national news story. And the reason it's a big deal is this. Imagine living in a world where there is a single focal point of terror. A true manifestation of the boogeyman, if you will. A nuclear bomb, Godzilla, all of that rolled into one. And you have the Hulk. I mean, the Hulk is the tale that parents tell their children in order to get them to behave. If you don't behave, the Hulk will come get you. The difference is this is a physical thing. This is a real person. There are actual spots in the country where the Hulk has caused damage and injured people. And he has the potential to injure so many more. So the fact that this being has been captured is under lock and key, at least for the moment, is a huge deal. People are breathing the biggest sigh of relief they've ever had. They probably feel much better knowing that the Fantastic Four are circling in their Fantasticar. However, I have to ask, why does the Fantasticar look like a cheap roller skate? Again, everybody feels pretty secure. However, in the plane, nothing is secure. Bruce starts losing his cool the moment he wakes up. That's not a good sign. And again, as, as kind of alluded to before the synopsis, the whole conversation that was needed could have been delayed. They couldn't talk about this on the ground in a few hours when everybody's cool? No. Matt had to do it now, and Matt was wrong in that. And Matt definitely should have seen the signs coming. I mean, General Ross loses his cool. He gasps, he loses his stogie, and when Thunderbolt Ross starts losing his sh**, you know it's bad, okay? But Matt doesn't just put his hands up and say, okay, I was wrong, bad plan. No, Matt not only creates this situation, he stops it from being resolved, and yes, as a reader, I know, we want to see the Hulk out. But in story, is Matt being too confident? Are the soldiers being too aggressive? I'm not sure. But of course, we have the inevitable Hulk out, and either the Hulk likes to wink, or he has Forrest Whitaker eye, I'm not sure, some kind of fungal infection, and the Hulk left his eye drops in Nevada. As I kind of mentioned, it had to go this way. The Hulk out was imminent, but as the Hulk out occurs, Matt gets the chance to lawyer the Hulk for the first time and talk to him, which is not a tactic used very often for the Hulk, hence the Hulk's surprise. And because of that, we have the best six panels of the book. We have the planes progression to the ground, we have army vehicles in pursuit on the ground getting ready, and then we have Matt and the Hulk shaking hands and everything seems to be positive. But come on, this is the Hulk. We can't have a positive ending. And of course we have to have Ross totally blow it. And everything escalates once again, leading us to, well, where we thought the issue would end after all. Let's be honest, we kind of knew beat for beat once the Hulk was captured and put on a plane where this was going to go. I mean, we're left with this cliffhanger with the Hulk versus pretty much everybody from the FF to the Army and more guest stars with a ton of innocent bystanders and expensive property to boot. That's where the issue ends. Let me get into my final verdict. It's easier to discuss that way. This is some good Hulk stuff. Almost everything is represented uh, that we would be familiar with in the Hulk, save Betty and Major Talbot. Again, that beginning had me. We're in the desert fighting the Army and Ross in particular. You already have my buy-in. Now, Matt's riding shotgun a bit in this issue. We had Daredevil for a moment. But for the most part, we've had Matt Murdock, but he has a relevant reason to be here. And he does get a moment to really shine by talking to the Hulk. Some of the other guest stars were a real treat, especially Cap and Nick. And again, we have moments that sync up with things happening in their own books. Trimpy is a competent artist. I have no real gripes. 
However, this isn't some of his most groundbreaking stuff. As has been the case with this crossover double feature series, we have a setup, yet this time, it's not without a compelling issue in and of itself. There's a lot of drama on the line, there's a lot of tension when you're 40,000 feet in the air with a dude who could turn green and tear the crap out of your hole. And of course, we're all leading to something huge. Bruce Banner will finally face the justice system. For the Hulk, it's all closing in and crashing down on him. So for a story that begins with 10 pages of action, we move into a strong, poignant story that shows the potential to reason with the Hulk. It manages to keep the reader on the Hulk's side, and it manages to get us ready for next week, the next chapter of this story. Good stuff. Enough said. And of course, next week, The Incredible Hulk number 153 will be picking up from this particular story element. And of course, before we wrap up this week, I do have an email that's been long overdue since last May, and I do apologize for that, but I've been waiting until I can really talk about it fully. There'll be another one next week that'll also be at the end uh, for length and really, to be honest with you, for spoiler content. Next week will be kind of a special episode as we'll be revisiting the Netflix series, thanks to an email from a listener. This week, let me read you this email from Dave Loudon. It came to me with a subject line of Battling Jack Murdoch. Dave writes, Dear Dave, and of course his Dear Daves are double Ds, so Dear Dave, listening to this week's podcast is always a fantastic, informative, and entertaining ride. I loved your reading of Jack Murdoch's deal with Sweeney as similar to Faust. There's a beautiful fatalism to it that escalates it to the level of tragedy. I've been thinking about Maggie Murdoch. I love the background on their names, by the way, and something dawned on me about Maggie that ties into fatalism, and tragedy. If you look at Shakespearean tragedy, all too often the matriarch is the stronger of the parents. Yes, the patriarch is the battler, but the true psychological steel belongs to mum. Read like this, Maggie hasn't just left her son with his father, but disowned him. Being devout, she has seen the devil in him and wants nothing more to do with either of them. How brutal is that? Suddenly, Jack telling a young Matt that his mother is dead is more of a protective white lie rather than a spiteful black lie, which I've always had trouble reconciling. Then you've got Jack's suicide by organized crime. I have to admit, in a really sick and twisted way, this really excited me. As we know, Matt Murdock battles with depression. Having arm wrestled with it myself, I understand that thinking that leads you to believe your loved ones would be better off without you. Your reading of Jack's inner working smacks of depression and this could well be the devil that Maggie sees in him, as it's often illustrated as a darkness oozing from its host. I love the portrayal of Wilson Fisk's mum in the Netflix series. It does make me wonder, under different circumstances, Hornhead could have ended up closer to Kingpin as both had dads that liked to throw their dukes about and their mothers that, depending on interpretation, were a lot more callous than they looked. Thanks for taking the time to consider the contents of my mind. Looking forward to another fantastic Sunday podcast. It really is the best listen around. Cheers, Dave. And thank you for this email, Dave. First of all, let me speak to the Shakespearean aspect, the, the idea of fatalism, that everything is fated to be. And with Jack, I think that might be true. Yes, he made a decision, but I think that even if he had thrown that fight, Jack was doomed, either by his own hand or just being seen as superfluous to the Fixer's organization. And I think that's extremely strong, that idea that Matt was going to go through this journey no matter what, and of course, Jack himself. If you look at almost any what-if story, it does pretty much operate on the idea of fatalism, that this character is going to end up being a rendition of who they are now. The thing that blew my mind, and the thing that continues to do so, is that idea of the mother being a strong element, and 
my immediate thought process went to my favorite Shakespearean play, Hamlet. And with Hamlet, you have Gertrude being a very, very strong influence on this. Gertrude is what sets the play in motion, essentially. Her and her treachery and killing Hamlet's father, which puts Hamlet in a situation of revenge. If you look at Maggie's leaving... That kind of set the path for both Jack and Matt. For Matt to truly become Daredevil, Jack had to die. Matt had to see that, you know, there are things that are beyond the law's control. There has to be some way to enforce these rules outside of the actual system that's built to enforce these rules. It's an imperfect system, but Matt saw that opportunity and that had to happen because of the emotional turmoil of Jack's death. And that whole idea really struck me as, not an analog to Hamlet in terms of Matt, but two characters that are grown in the same or similar garden. Maggie leaves. This leads Jack down a dark path that leads to his death. In Hamlet, Gertrude conspires to kill the king, which puts Hamlet on a path. And they're very, very similar. As much as I hate to admit it, Daredevil is inevitably a tragedy. There are high, shining moments. But when you live a life like Matt Murdock has lived, especially post-Miller, post-Nascenti, there's no real happy ending. While Matt's not as driven as Batman, it's not a crusade, it is a mission. And it's something where I can't see Matt just putting it down. There's not going to be a day where Matt says, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to go live a happy life. He's tried it, and he has failed. And, you know, I'm kind of coming at this preparing for some episodes coming down the line featuring a certain Greek assassin. And there's a scene in one of Electra's early days, I mean, it's from the Bendis run on Electra, talking about how her name predetermines her destiny. So since Electra was named after a Greek tragedy, her life in turn will be a tragedy. Matt, on the other hand, is not defined by the first name. It's not Matt. It's Murdoch. Maggie gave up her life for a mission, for a set of beliefs. Matt, in a lot of ways, has done the same. Let's be honest, up until Kirsten McDuffie, Matt was unable to maintain a long-term healthy relationship. And he may not even be able to continue that. Jury's still out at this stage. So Matt's inevitable ending will be tragedy. You can't paint a happy ending on this and call it in line with the character's philosophy, with his whole ideology, with the storytelling model that's been built around him. And as soon as you put that on the table, how really Maggie got the ball rolling, it was never going to end well from the moment she left it at Jack Murdoch's doorstep. And suddenly I felt a swell of sympathy for the character, that like the Hulk, who we've been discussing this episode, these are two characters that will never really have that happy, definitive ending. There's no white picket fence American dream in their future. There's a good legacy to be left behind, but there's no happy ending. It just cannot end that way. And that's extremely depressing. But with that, I'm going to sign off. As mentioned, next week, uh, we're going to be seeing Matt with the fight of his life on his hands, facing the Hulk in battle and defending him in court as we look at Incredible Hulk number 153. For the time being, you can still find the show at DaredevilPodcast.com. Of course, there are links to iTunes, the RSS feed, and Stitcher, none of which will be changing. There is a handy contact form. Or if you want to contact me directly, it's mail at daredevilpodcast.com. On social media, the show is at facebook.com slash daredevilpodcast, as well as twitter.com slash daveweeder. And of course, as always, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Count evil father, he lies his king. Dream of gold Friday. When you hear his name, and down.
Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.